Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Deborah Dundas, the books editor for the Toronto Star, and biographer Andrew Morton. Andrew began chronicling the lives and times of the British royal family long before the crown hit Netflix, and his number one New York Times best-selling biography, Diana, Her True Story, was described by critics as a modern classic and the closest we will ever come to her autobiography. Here, in the wake of the Oprah interview with Meghan and Harry and the death of Prince Philip, is Deborah Dundas in conversation with Andrew Morton about his new book, Elizabeth and Margaret, The Intimate World of the Windsor Sisters. Well, Andrew, nice to have you here. It's um, really good timing, this book is, in terms of royal sibling relationships. Did you plan it that way? Yes, I've got a hotline to William and Harry. I just said, you know, you have a big bust up because you've, you need to help my new book, Elizabeth and Margaret, The Intimate World of the Windsor Sisters. But it is remarkable that I did start on the premise of my research on the fact that there's so many compare and contrasts inside the House of Windsor. I mean, the, 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 I think we talked last time about my previous book, Wallace in Love. And there, there was an awful lot of compare and contrast with the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, or the Queen as she was then. And, you know, and then when you stand back and take a look at the, the House of Windsor, it's always compare and contrast, isn't it? You know, Fergie and Diana, Edward and Bertie, obviously William and Harry, but probably the best known double act of them all is Elizabeth and, and Margaret. And I, and I, uh, look through the, the history books to see if there's been another example of a princess becoming queen with a sister who'd been by her side throughout most of the reign. And answer so there came none. So this is a unique double act. And, you know, they're kind of interesting salt and pepper royals. Now, there's been a lot written about Margaret and Elizabeth, and we've watched them, or, you know, I haven't watched them growing up, but, you know, generations have watched them uh, grow grow up. Why did you think now was the time to write about them? What did you think that you could add that was fresh and new to, to their story? Well, I, I, I think that the Queen is in now in the sunset of her reign, um, that there are more people speaking out about Margaret and her lifestyle. Um, and, and 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 people reflecting on the Queen and her early days and her her, her time with um, and her romance, obviously with Prince Philip, and the part that Margaret played in the early part of her reign and also towards the end of it. So it's 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 kind of like a a, a book that was waiting to be written. Okay, because it, it take it takes a look at her whole life um, through this special relationship. Is that the idea? Yes, indeed. I mean, it's always difficult to get a handle on the Queen. And I think that this, this book gives you an insight into the Queen 
but also into her relationship with with other members of her family, not, notably Margaret. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's. I find it fascinating that they shared a bed. They even shared the same. Sorry, they shared a bedroom. Uh, they they even shared the same clothes. I mean, Margaret was always wearing Elizabeth's hand me downs. Um, during the, they they became very close during the Second World War. But it's that step change that in, interested me when she when Elizabeth, a very reluctant queen, um, be, went from being a princess to a queen, and uh, uh, Margaret was then in, in a different kind of relationship with her sister, uh, one which um, you know almost ruined the, the coronation because her relationship with a divorcee, Group Captain Peter Townsend, mm -hmm. um, was very nearly outed before the coronation, which would have put a big, a long shadow over it. As it was, they managed to keep it quiet. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, that that story and, and others were have been approached in uh, in the Crown, which has been uh, incredibly popular. But um, the Crown has gotten a lot of things wrong. What what sort of are the most important things you think need to be corrected about that? Well, this whole relationship between the Queen and Margaret uh, is depicted in the Crown as being a hostile one, um, where the Queen um, you know, basically says, do your duty, um, give up the man you love for, um, uh, uh, and sacrifice your life on, on the altar of the Crown. Well, I went down to... To the National Archives in London and did a bit of digging around and discovered that, it, that the, the, the love story of the century wasn't quite all it seemed. It was a lot more modern in some respects. And let me just kind of strip, strip this back a bit. A bit. Mm -hmm. When Edward VIII was considering abdication, his future wife, Wallace Simpson, said, do not abdicate, do not abdicate. She was on the phone to him from the south of France where she was in hiding, and but he wouldn't listen to her. He had all the, he had all the, the cards and she had none. And the obverse was the case with Margaret and Peter Townsend. And this is, this is the fascinating thing. In The Crown and elsewhere, it's that the Queen, you know, insists that she does her duty and she and she gives up uh, this romance. P Peter Townsend was a decent man, nice, nice, nice chap. Everybody liked him, but he was divorced. And remember, divorce was a dirty word inside the royal family, inside the, the, the state, and also certainly in the Church of England. And Margaret was informed early on She'd have, she might have to give up her title, her appellation, her royal highness, her civil list payments, and, and so on. And after a period of time where the, the two, where um, Peter Townsend went into exile for two years, waiting for the, for the time that Margaret became 25 so that she could safely marry um, him without any kind of permission from the Queen under the Royal Marriages Act. Um, the new prime minister, Anthony Eden, a divorcee himself, uh, came bearing gifts to Balmoral for when uh, Margaret turned 25. He told her she didn't have to give up her, her, her appellation. She didn't have to give up her title. She didn't have to give up the civil list. But
But the one person who was kept in the dark about this wasn't the Queen, wasn't the Prime Minister, wasn't Margaret, but it was Margaret's boyfriend, her ostensible lover, Peter Townsend, who didn't have a clue. And in fact, the Prime Minister even said, you can, he might even be eligible for a title himself and payment from the civil list. Now, in his memoirs and in, in, in his every public statement, he's always said, oh, the, 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 what Margaret had to give up was too much compared to what I could give her my, on my air attaché salary. And so he was kept absolutely in the dark. And it's the obverse of the Edward and, and Mrs. Simpson. She was the one with the cards. Margaret was the one with the cards. And she decided to play them in a way that meant giving up her relationship with, with Townsend, but him not knowing that actually there was a fair bit of wiggle room there. And the other kind of final you know, in, intrigue was that Eddie Fisher's daughter, Carrie, Mm -hmm. that at a film premiere that Eddie Fisher, the famous American crooner, had an affair with Margaret. Well, I did some more digging, and yes, there are pictures of them together <coughs> at the Dorchester Hotel uh, in the same time that um, uh, that, uh, that um, uh, Carrie Fisher uh, suggested that there was a romance taking place. So that adds another layer of intrigue. So was Margaret two-timing Peter Townsend. So, so, so much for the romance of the centuries. It's kind of like a far more modern romance. It's it's a woman holding the cards and the man um, being the supplicant. Well, it's interesting too because the queen has always been portrayed as the dutiful and the conservative daughter, and um, Margaret as the vivacious daughter. Vivacious is always uh, the word that comes up, and so they were they were well-placed and well-born well to be the heir being the conservative one and the spare being the more vivacious one. Um, but um, it's interesting because that's not what we would have seen about Margaret. We would have seen her sure as vivacious, but also as heartbroken. Yeah, as, as the tragic princess. Yes. She was seen as very much as the tragic princess, the one who gave up everything for duty who was left on the shelf, who, you know, she had a sister who, who had a happy marriage, very handsome, na dashing naval sure. officer, had two children, um, uh, was was seen as the precursor to the new Elizabeth Elizabethan age. And what was Margaret? Well, in 1952, when George VI died, she was a wreck. I mean, she was drinking too much, she was smoking too much, she was taking drugs to sleep. She, I mean in a funny kind of way, as several biographers have suggested, the, the, the true love of her life wasn't Peter Townsend, but it was her father. And she was mourning long and hard for the, for the death of her father. And the interesting thing as well is that, like Harry struggled to find a role and eventually found one, thanks to his, his marriage to Meghan, um, so, uh, Margaret was struggling to find a role. And the firstborn does have it, it, it it's, the Queen's always said, well, you know, th there were no rules about being Queen. I just follow what my father said. And that is true. But when you actually look at the day-to-day the -day routine of, of the head of state, it's a bit like being the president or, or, or the prime minister. Everything is laid, you know, everything's in the diary, it's laid down and logged. 
you know, you, you, you're up at eight, you have your breakfast, you meet the private secretary at 10 o'clock, you go through the day's events, you have an investiture, you meet a diplomat, you have a lunch, you have a, a couple of engagements, and then, and it's, it's a pretty grueling, and then there's those interminable red boxes, these famous red, red boxes, boxes yes. which, which the Queen always kind of loves to dive into. And, 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 they, all, and they said at the start of her reign, she was far different to her father, who would take a long time. It was, he was not an especially intelligent man, and he had had, had, had a poor education. And the Queen was much brisker and and more uh, businesslike. She was a basically a courtier's dream. And then compare that with Margaret. I mean, Margaret was was actually ostensibly, yes, she was mourning her father. But within but once a, a few years have passed, the Townsend um, uh, embryo affair. And and Margaret is, is kind of worried about being left on the shelf looking for a role in life. I mean, she's in her, her 20s, but she's also having fun. Don't run away with the idea she's not having fun. She would she would go out night clubbing with seven or eight men. And she would tease the media because then the press would think it was, say, Johnny Dal Keith, Dal Keith, who was uh, who, who was her new man, or, um, or or somebody else. And and her day ended at seven in the morning when she fell into bed after crooning uh, by the piano and singing show tunes and drinking her famous grouse whiskey, and then the Queen was was up. So, you know, it was a very much a, a very uh, different lifestyle she led and she was she did have having said it on a more serious note she was always struggling to find a role where, because the narrative of a member of the royal family is pretty firmly fixed by the media you know and as margaret herself recognized the queen is the font of all honor so the second sister must be the font of all evil and malice is it is it is it uh, that so cut and dry? Well, so she recognised. She recognised that yin and yang, mm -hmm. that, you know, that it's not like, the, I mean, that, that she, was the, she was the extrovert one. She was the showbiz one. She was the one who loved to take centre stage at, at family parties when they did the, the famous pantomimes at Windsor Castle. She's the one who, you know, who liked to take the starring role. And Elizabeth was happy to let her. But... But it kind of puts puts the character of the other sister in the shade. I mean, the, the Queen was quite a good actress, but not as good as Margaret. She was a good tap dancer. I mean, just imagine the Queen tap dancing now, where she was a good tap dancer, and of course she was a she was an excellent mimic. Um, and when they spoke on the telephone, she would you know, lapse into French or or mimic somebody that that they'd met. Um, but these are qualities which are overshadowed by the second sister because she was more extrovert, more outgoing, and um, the, the queen, a, a, a shyer individual. But of, but of course, when she became queen, that all changed and the balance of power changed. Um, and she still had the ability to say what Margaret could and couldn't do, or that's what we seem seem to think of it. I mean, there was always the idea that Margaret was the second sister, the, you know, 
um, the one the one being being left behind. Um, it's an interesting sort of power struggle between the two of them, really, or or balance of power between the two of them. There's there's duty, but then there's also um, there's also family, and I think that kind of dynamic also also applies right now with the royal family. Um, we've seen them say, well, Harry is always a beloved member of the family, but then he's not a member of the firm. Uh, it's it's an interesting... Yes, indeed. It, it, re, I mean, uh, an awful lot of the conflict that between Harry and William, for example, mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, um, was over the fact that there's no getting away from the fact that Harry is number two, mm-hmm. is in the shadow. And there's and their offices were funded by Prince Charles. And so, you know, the most of the money went to William. Even though, as Harry would point out, we're, we're getting bigger crowds, we're, we're reaching out to a more diverse uh, racial mix because of my wife's uh, biracial identity. And that... But that caused um, a conflict, and it's it's so interesting because you you see it, it it's history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Because with Margaret, she was always number two. But what was she in the sixties? She was, and with her husband, she eventually married the photographer Tony mm-hmm. Armstrong Jones. She was, along with Elizabeth Taylor the most photographed, glamorous woman on the planet. I mean, it, she she happened to be uh, in her prime when the, the word paparazzi was just invented, when it when in the in the early 1960s, they, they had the long lenses to take pictures. So so for example, when she went water skiing, there were all, all these pictures taken of her. Um, out at first nights, going to the, the theatre, going to the ballet or whatever, and the, uh, meeting the Beatles. So, you know, she was just the, the 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 quintessential example of a glamorous royal. And and she had a um, a salon at Kensington Palace, where you know the likes of Rudolf Nureyev and Margot mm. Fontaine, um, Peter Sellers, a comedian, Brit Eklund. Um, uh, uh, John Betjeman, the poet laureate. This, this, it, it was a tremendously artistic, uh, uh, intellectual salon. And and it's interesting too that in her later life, um, Margaret would seek out um, Oxford and Cambridge dons, professors, mm. and 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 because she always resented the fact that back to number two again she didn't have the education wasn't given the education that her sister had her sister had the the vice provost of eton the headmaster um come up from eton in his pony and trap to windsor castle to get mm-hmm. to teach her about constitutional history mm-hmm. uh, margaret uh, was told to learn french country songs so there is that disconnect, and and she always resented it, and she always resented her mother, the queen mother, for not, you know, not allowing her to have that education that she craved, and. Uh, they were, they were the, quite the triumvirate, weren't they? The the queen mother, Margaret, and and the, and the queen. I mean, they were they were so tight and so close, and they were seen as 
as being such. It was the three of them. Once their father died, it would have been the four of them, right? Before before he died, or the four of us, isn't that what he called them? Um, well, and it became he, the they, three they, of they them. Call, he, uh, George VI called them we four. We four. Mm-hmm. And then then when he died, of course, uh, the, the fourth member was was Prince Philip, but he never really got a look in. <laughs> it was, it, I mean, the, the, one of the... People talk about sexism and so on, but I mean the the royal family has been a matriarchy for 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 much of this the century. So, um, uh, the 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 Queen Princess Margaret and the Queen Mother were this tight troika, and one of the things I find interesting is that they on a Sunday they went to church usually at Windsor. Then they go for drinks at at um, the Royal Lodge, where Margaret and the Queen Mother stayed at the weekends. And the Queen often asked the Queen Mother, "How is Margaret today?" I.e., seeing what kind of the wind was like with her character, <laughs> and that goes back to what you were saying about family and position. Yes, mm-hmm. she was the Queen, but she was also kind of just looking slightly warily at what her sister was. What uh, what little tricks her sister might be playing this weekend. Um, That's funny. Uh, it, no, when, when Margaret and the Queen Mother died so closely together, I think there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of sympathy for the Queen because that, that family was gone and so quickly and so quickly with the two of them. Um, there was a loneliness to the Queen then. Um, and I think that was echoed in the lonely picture of the Queen sitting by herself you know, with with her mask on at, at Prince Philip's funeral, there's always there's there's been, you know, since then a bit of a, a solitariness to the Queen. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, it's one of the things that um, Margaret doesn't get enough credit for is that she really, towards you know her mid, during her middle ages, did, devoted her life to solely supporting the queen mm-hmm. and um you know she was the one who would do all the the kind of second rank jobs so you know the queen gets state opening of parliament um margaret goes down to croydon to open the new post office that kind <laughs> of thing so uh, but she willingly undertook those jobs so, and and uh, and at the same time she instinctively recognized the 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 basic loneliness and isolation of being the head of state. Often prime ministers, in, I mean, the Queen's had, what, 13, 14 prime ministers, they've all mm-hmm. said it's a, it's a great consolation as prime minister to be able to speak your mind to somebody who you know is not going to say anything to anybody. It's You can totally trust them. But who can the Queen speak to? And it's something she, it's in, I say in the book, it's she's something she discussed with Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham became quite friendly with with uh, the Queen uh, uh, d- during the fifties, when he when he came over to Britain f- for his evangelical uh, ministries, and both of them were looking out at, uh, at the people congregating outside Buckingham Palace once, and Billy Graham said, "Wouldn't you like?" to join them and she says yes with all my heart and Billy Graham, Graham says yes I feel the same way but we're both kind of isolated um, because we're both at the top of obviously different pyramids social pyramids but nonetheless so, mm-hmm. they feel that same sense of isolation and I think that the, the, 
with Margaret, you see this love for the Queen, central love, but also a loyalty. Yes, she's given the Queen a lot of headaches, and we haven't, I mean, you know, <clears throat> the divorce from Tony Snowden, mm-hmm. um, and the, the whole Townsend affair, so close to the coronation, so, so close to um, the, the start of the r- rule, uh, her relationship with Roddy Llewellyn, the mm-hmm. jobless gardener who was 13 years her junior, um, um, in the days before the words cougar and toy boy were not... <laughs> not then fashionable so yeah so she's given she gave the the queen some headaches but at the same time she towards the end of her life it, it's it kind of struck me that she was more of her one woman praetorian guard that she mm-hmm. she was there to support the queen and i think and you know um jackie kennedy was once once said to margaret yes i like the queen but she's a bit heavy going and <laughs> And Margaret replied, she's supposed to be. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, that's, so that's the, that's the whole thing. You, you, you're not supposed to feel that comfortable talking to the Queen. You're not like talking to your, to your mum and dad or your, your brother or sister. You're talking to the Queen. Now, it's interesting because you brought up a, a, little, a little earlier about, um, you know, Harry finding his role thanks to Meghan. Now, one of the things that Meghan Markle said was that it, William and and Charles and are, are trapped. Um, is that is that a fair assessment? That, mm-hmm. that the, 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 that she made him helped him see that that it was a trap that they were in and they couldn't get out of it, but he could, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair assessment that. Um, she she's come along and offered an, an alternative reality of service and duty, and he fi- finds that a very attractive one compared mm. to um, the the prospect that was on offer. It's it's interesting because the 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 way we've been talking is it seems as if the Queen and Margaret were were in that trap, but now with this generation, Harry's starting to to kind of go out of it. Is that? Uh... Yeah, I mean, there's no question of it that. That you that as a that both Elizabeth and Margaret they they felt you know not you know caged in in a way but mm-hmm. it, but let's just take one simple example VE night when famously they Margaret you know chivied her father can we go yeah. out and join the crowds yeah well it shows you how little access they'd had to the outside world that they had to basically plead with their father on this night of all nights to go out to join the throng and he reluctantly agreed and um and it's uh, and they duly went out and and, the, and for, for the queen as she said herself it was one of the most magical moments of her life um just this joy Being like the rest of them and, and, and joining the rest of the plan so yeah so and you know when just other simple um descriptions when when they held a garden party the queen mother used to call them zoo teas zoo teas because where because because they were you know (laughs) because they were just like animals in a zoo that everybody was looking at and and, and today and then today the queen finds it very disconcerting that she gets out of her car and she faces a wall of people's cameras 
yes. you know, iPhones and so on, just taking pictures of her. So there is that sense. And and I, I mentioned the story of, of Billy Graham and, and feeling, you know, if not necessarily trapped, at least apart. And Margaret and Elizabeth realised that early on, they would, when they lived at 145 Piccadilly as children, Mm-hmm. They would look out from their nursery at the rest of the world going by and wondered, you know, wonder what their lives are like. And everybody from outside would look at inside wondering, I wonder how what Elizabeth and Margaret are doing. So yeah. there's always been that. And uh, 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 and yeah, I mean, um, there is a there is a sense that I mean, the word trapped is 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 more pejorative than you might think, but, but it, it, it's something where their lives are preordained exactly. and that brings a certain kind of routine or an, an unwanted routine. I mean, you know, could, I mean, Prince Charles always complains about having to um, uh, organize his life six months in advance. Yes. Um, and, and he's, you know, he, he's always, and, and I suppose, in a way, you do feel trapped because you know you know that on November the thirtieth, you're going to be doing, you know, a visit Cutting to some ribbon somewhere, to, Black, <laughs> yeah, to Blackpool or hosting yes. a committee, or so. so. There is that sense of, and 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 then on that wider sense, that your life is dedicated to the, the monarchy. Um, and now, you 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 wrote that both sisters were universally known and almost constantly surrounded by people yet in so many ways they remained indecipherable to everyone but each other. It was from this position of magnificent isolation that the sisters formed their inseparable intuitive bond. And I just thought the phrase magnificent isolation was uh, was wonderful. It couldn't have been anything else for them, could it have? No, I mean, and it was magnificent isolation in, in this glorious Buckingham Palace with you know the the, the the objet and the paintings and priceless things but but they were isolated and i mean you know when they first moved into the palace as children uh, they they asked crawfy their governess can we yes. dig a tunnel to go back to uh, <laughs> piccadilly poor things now william and harry have that type of magnificent isolation I would think nobody but the two of them knows what the two of them have gone through up until this point. Well, I wouldn't call it magnificent isolation. I call it tragic isolation. They, mm. They've been united as brothers by the fact that they've both experienced the death of their mother at an early age. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I think that their bond is, is a different kind of bond to that between Elizabeth and, and Margaret. Elizabeth and Margaret's bond was, was the fact that they were literally kept away from other people they had a handful handful of friends um you know just the, the daughters of aristocracy and whereas with and it's one of the features of the queen's reign that people don't really appreciate this reign has seen every member of the royal family go to school with other people with other other children that wasn't the case in That's years interesting, uh, isn't it? Yeah. And it's one of the, you know, and people don't appreciate that because obviously everybody goes to school. So they think that that's, you know, that's the way of the world. It isn't. Elizabeth and Margaret were educated in palaces. They had tutors. And they they had tutors and they Mm. did not mix with other children. Um, And I think with William and Harry, they've mixed with other kids 
They've gone to the same schools, uh, Ludgrove and Eton. They've gone down the same kind of military route, in, initial military route, anyway, Sandhurst. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 but they have mixed with other people. So I, th- I think that the, the, the royal side of, as it were, of their unique position is is less intense as, than it was for Margaret and Elizabeth. But obviously the, the family side is far more far more difficult because they both had to endure um, the the loss of their mother at a, at a critical age, you know, early mm-hmm. teens. What do you think they could learn from looking at the Queen and Margaret's sibling relationship? Well, Margaret always used to say, "We don't have rifts; we have rows." And I have rows with my sister, then it's done with. And you know, on one occasion. Macmillan, the Prime Minister, was talking to the Queen in, in an audience and <laughs> Margaret storms in and saying, said, if you weren't the Queen, nobody would want to talk to you, and then storms out again. And Macmillan thinks, I've, I've just <laughs> entered a family family row here. And so, yeah, so they, they did have their rows. Uh, what can they learn? Well, that, that, that f- forgiveness comes with time. Um, I think I think that for 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 William and Harry, um, they uh, uh, need the the blessing of time to to re- reconcile their relationship because I think it's something that everybody everybody wants to see. Sure. Um, Do you think they're um, capable of it? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure that they're. Of, they had they had their ups and downs before this, you know that they've and. I'm quite sure that if there'd be more effort made uh, in the early going, they could have reconciled themselves. But I think they got themselves into into a, a difficult position. I mean, if I, I've been doing some uh, talking to groups at, at Montecito over the last mm-hmm. few days, and I was and. Um, it's it's my, and you've heard it here first. It's my um, suggestion that they meet together on the polo field at Santa Barbara for a uh-huh. charity polo match, and that would be a, 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 an interesting sign of reconciliation. That would be. That's uh, that's your next project. You're not going to write a book. You're going to get a polo match together. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody else can do that. <laughs> Now, have you have you seen Harry and Meghan? I mean, you're uh, no, living in the I, same part of the part no, of the world these days. I've, I've spoken to lots of people who have. Okay. Um, the, yeah, the, where they've gone on date nights and and so on and so forth. Yeah. Fun. Now, what do you think Diana would make of everything that's going on right now? With her, with her son. Well, I, think, I, I think that she would understand a lot of Harry's frustration because she felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And um, she, remember, she had effectively left the royal family mm-hmm. and she was on her own as a kind of independent humanitarian. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that Meghan and Harry are doing the same kind of thing. They're going down the same kind of route and they're, and they're taking as f- f- their playbook um, Diana's life. I mean, yeah. and as I as I say in, in the updated version of Diana, her true story that she was looking at houses in Malibu. 
she thought America was a place of openness and and uh, would embrace her. So she and, and in the last year of her life, she never went. She she was in London for a few days, but never went out of London, and spent most of her time in America. So, you know, she. <laughs> One of the things which is kind of a, a, a del- delicious piece of fantasy is that she was dating Teddy Forsman, who was the who owned, I think, it's Gulfstream, this mm-hmm. um, private jet company, and she was encouraging him to run for president because she quite fancied the idea of being first lady. <laughs> so, so, you, so you never know what would have happened. You never um, know. That would have been a different kind of Camelot, that, I that, think. That would have been, now that would have been a book, wouldn't it? That would have And of been. course, and, and you, you also forget that Donald Trump, a certain Donald J. Trump was uh, wooing her as well. Oh, good God, at, help us. At the same time. So you could, you, you could genuinely have had a first lady of in, in the, in the Princess of Wales. Um, Interesting. Well, there we are. Thanks for all of the inside information and the insight into the royals. It's always something we all enjoy, I think. Very nice talking to you again. That was the Toronto Star's Deborah Dundas in conversation with Andrew Morton about his new book, Elizabeth and Margaret, The Intimate World of the Windsor Sisters. As always, I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our spring season runs through June, and it's all available online at writersfestival.org, so all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library, the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>